You're listening to the Media People Podcast, the show where we learn about the people who make up the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Views expressed by participants are personal. If you're looking for a true media industry veteran, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone with a resume that stacks up to Marilyn Sherman's. With 30-plus years' experience, Marilyn's held a number of senior positions in the media agency world. In part one of our chat, Marilyn Sherman explains how a teacher strike inadvertently launched her media career while still in high school, her days at Saffer, Kravit, and Friedman, where she served as planner and buyer on many big retail accounts like Towers Department Stores and Baddest Shoes, and shares stories about how the entrepreneurial culture of that agency challenged planners and buyers to rethink how they did business. Come back next week when Marilyn chats with us about her time at Echo Advertising, her current role as media director of 262 International, and how she feels the relationship between media reps and agencies has become less interpersonal than it used to be, and why it's important for all parties to improve that. Marilyn, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you Okay. for this great opportunity. Looking forward to the discussion. Let's go back to the beginning. We do this with everyone. Uh, where are you from? Toronto, born and bred. In fact, I always feel like I'm one of the few when I'm <laughs> talking to people in this industry. So few of us are actually born and bred here. Well, what part of Toronto are you from? North York, born and bred and still live within a couple kilometers of where I was born. So you didn't choose to get out of town or anything like that. You wanted to stay right where everything was. You had what you wanted in that Lo- neighborhood. Love Toronto. Great city, lots to do, never bored. So tell us, uh, what was life like growing up then uh, in North York? It sounds like you weren't bored ever. Lots of friends, uh, lots of family, and uh, we certainly lived in simpler times, not to sound really old, but it was before internet and even before color TV. In fact, I remember we were one of the households the last to have a color TV. We got made fun of a lot, but we loved outdoors. I loved reading and uh, just loved being with family and friends. That's what I remember about growing up. And you mentioned, apart from reading, you said you were a pretty good student growing up. Uh, What kind of courses interested you? I was really good at math. I loved numbers. I probably was one of the few people who got 100% in math through middle school, grade 7, grade 8, even high school. In fact, by the time I got to grade 10 and 11, I barely went to class. I just went and wrote the tests and the exams and still got 90s and 100s in math. So always loved numbers. So quite funny that I get to work with numbers now all day. So while the rest of us are taking gym to try to keep our averages up, you're taking math to keep it going. That was me. (laughs) Calculus, trigonometry, nothing phased you whatsoever? I remember functions and relations, algebra and calculus, all three. But don't ask me now. I don't remember one thing about it. (laughs) I'm I'm envious. I can't can't keep up with that. And let's talk about uh, your media career and where it started because you described it as you tripped into the business. It wasn't something that you were looking for. Yeah, I'm probably one of those rare people, although my generation, and if you look at people who have been in this business 30 or 40 years, so many of us tripped into it, um, didn't necessarily go to school for it, and I'm really that. Um, in fact, I was a high school student, like not even finished high school. I think it was 17 to be exact. And I was looking for a summer job because the one I had, I got laid off. It was a union job and couldn't, uh, uh, keep us going cause they didn't have enough work. And basically what happened was the, um, just went knocking on doors. I went to a placement agency. They had an ad. They needed somebody to type and answer phones. They said they only had two weeks worth of work. I said, I need all the work I can get. 
So um, they hired me and it turned out to be an ad agency. At the time, it was called Saffer Advertising. They were on Bridgeland Avenue, which was quite close to where I lived. That was Bridgeland right by Yorkdale. And I was living at Keelan Wilson at the time. So it was pretty easy to get to. I knew nothing about what an ad agency was or did, but I knew I was, I did a typing test and I was pretty fast on typing and I knew how to answer phones. So I figured that's a good thing. And, uh, basically they put me at a desk and I typed and answered phones and I was all of 17 years old and the agency was young and it was exciting and there was lots of activity and, uh, kind of didn't know what I was doing, but I faked it really well. And before I knew it, they said, can you stay on the whole summer? And um, actually, I was supposed to work at the exhibition. At the end of the summer, I'd committed to a job there, but I loved the um, office environment. It was certainly cool and air-conditioned, so I uh, turned the ex-job down and stayed on for the whole summer. So you turned down being a carny then in order yeah, to go into Yeah, I think I was going to work in the Better Living Building or something, so <laughs> it wasn't quite as fun as carnies, but yes. But the interesting you point out here is this wasn't your job out of high school. You were 17, so this was the summer before, I believe, grade 12? Yeah, this was actually going into grade 12. So exactly, so I guess I was, yeah, probably 17, going into grade 12, 16, 17, something like that. And uh, yeah, so I was going into grade 12 and, uh, of course, went back to school. Summer ended and said goodbye to everybody in the ad world. But that was the year, and I'm sure nobody remembers, but there was a high school teacher strike. See, no different than life today in the education system. And Every four uh, years we get one. Totally. I went through two of them in high school on my own. <laughs> oh, you remember those days. Yep. So uh, high school teachers went on strike. I believe it was probably late October. It was November-ish, um, so it was getting cold. I felt bad. Teachers had to pick it in the cold. And uh, I thought, okay, this is quite boring. A lot of friends thought this was great. They stayed at home and watched soap operas. I quite wasn't into soap operas and I wasn't into staying at home. I was actually quite bored. So I called the media director at the time and I said, any chance you need some help? I was almost willing to volunteer, but luckily they were willing to pay and they needed people. (laughs) Uh, They specialized in retail and retail was really busy pre-Christmas November. So I actually worked and it was great and I earned some money and uh, bought a car, cheap car, of course, and uh, got to drive a Chevy Nova. Anybody remember those cars? My dad had a Chevy Nova. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't green. It was His so was ugly. yellow. <laughs> worse, <laughs> even worse. Basically, I got to drive to work and go past my teachers as they picketed through the streets. But uh, yeah, that's how I started off in this business. Uh, what type of, you mentioned retail, um, was that your first gig? What type of clients do they have? Um, you know, I, I remember one of the first clients I worked on was Baddest Shoes, okay? So okay. I mean, it was Baddest Shoes still Baddest around. Shoes still I think around. there's something else now. What do they might be called? But well, they've is, got a museum up. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, true. Just at Spadina But I think as a shoe store, I don't think there's Baddest Shoes anymore. But the, I remember it was November, or it was like probably November, and I had to send insertion orders to newspapers right across Canada. And for the insertion date, I had to write day after first snowfall. So it was an ad for boots, and I had to trust that the reps at each newspaper would run the ad the day after the first snowfall. <laughs> there was no weather channel. I couldn't say, hey, I know it snowed in Calgary. You have to run the ad. But you know what's awesome? That's the precursor <laughs> to weather targeting. Because yeah, you get totally. a lot of the digital groups come in, they go, we can target to the I weather. Know. You can be like, we were doing that before. Thank you. Yeah. Can you believe it? I, I was that. targeting to weather when, when it wasn't, uh, yeah, exactly. So shoes, I remember they worked on shoes. They had clients in the um, 
factory carpet was the carpet client. They had bad boy furniture appliances, towers, department stores. Um, pretty much everybody in retail kind of went to Morris Saffer. He was the real guru through the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And if anybody, you know, anything to do with retail, I actually got to work on the opening of the Eaton Center. Oh, that nice. Was quite some time ago. That's Back probably when 30 they had, years ago. That would have been Simpsons. No, Simpsons was across the street. I think or Simpsons it been, it was in it. It was Eaton's and Simpsons. I think Simpsons yep. was still there. We're and then it became Sears. Yeah, way the, back. So what was it like working back then? Like what was the typical media cycle like? Things like that. What 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 platform or what medium was Retail one? was very much about print. Lots of newspaper. You ran a full-page newspaper ad, and the merchandise moved. Uh, you know, you ran radio. You bought enough frequency. You bought tons of spots. And at the time, it was about spots. It wasn't about GRPs and reach and frequency. It's just tons of spots. And uh, you bought radio, and radio in combination with newspaper ads, and the merchandise moved. And that was the magic bullet back then. That's what did everything. Very much so. Very much so. Television really came later. I mean, uh, retailers couldn't afford television. So, you know, television was that expensive medium. Um, I remember Towers Department Store got into television, but many of our clients, it was radio and, and newspaper. Well, it's the problem with TV. It's twofold. It's, yeah, the spots cost a lot, but then you've got the upstart cost to actually get the creative bill. You could be forty or 50000 in the hole for one thirty-second spot. When you went, when that strike ended, what happened after that? Because you were kind of like, I like my job, but I guess I have to go back to school. Yeah, so the strike did end, and I believe it was late January. And wait a uh, minute, that strike went from October to January. November, November, January, November to January. Months. Yeah, it was about thirteen. I remember being like twelve weeks, thirteen weeks. It was a long time. And you guys didn't lose the school year? No, we did not. Because no. now, when we when the that. strikes get close to even two or three weeks, all they talk about, oh, yeah. what are they going to do with the school year? We'll have to yeah. move it into the summer. I don't remember. You know what? I honestly don't remember the details, but somehow we were we were able to get through. Um, but, but yeah, I did go back to school. I finished grade twelve, which uh, at the time there was grade 13 but you could you know some people graduate grade 12 but if you didn't have your grade 13 you couldn't go to university it was quite complex high school system but i did finish grade 12 and uh, at the end of that summer um your end of that school year i worked again so another summer and then i really wanted to stay working i did not want to go back to school for grade 13 but uh, my parents were not very happy with me well i'd imagine that you were the one using math to keep your average up as an elective. I was a good student. I had good grades. Teachers, my family all said, you should be going to university. You're smart. You can handle it. You should go become professional. Uh, they thought my math and sciences were so strong, I should go into something like pharmaceuticals or doctor or medicine, something like that. But I fell in love with the ad industry. I fell in love with the people that I got to work with. And uh, I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to figure out a way to do both at the same time. So I did correspondence courses. I went to school part-time. I switched to a semester system so I could work part-time and take two courses. Like I'd do two courses in the morning and then I went to work all afternoon. I was very creative. I eventually did pass grade 13, enough credits to say I'm a high school graduate. But by that time, my career was well underway and I was buying media. 
And, and tell us a little bit about how uh, the firm you were at, how they responded to it, because it sounds like they were willing to work around your schedule perfectly. They were. There were a couple of great media directors at the time. I have no clue if they're even still around or alive. But one of the first ones was a woman, Sandra Mudd and Barb Flesher. And then there was a Diane Klein. Who knows if any of these people are around? Maybe they're listening. Who knows? But uh, but basically, they figured out how to work around my schedule. And, uh, and it worked. It worked for both of us. And before I knew it, it was, you know, May and June and the school year was over and then I got to work full time. So I really started my career full time at age 18. And uh, your time at uh, Saffer Kravitz and Friedman, you described them as being real entrepreneurial leaders and uh, producing a really great culture. Tell us what made them entrepreneurial and uh, what that culture was like, because you speak very passionately about it. I think uh, they each had their own specialties. Uh, you know, Morris was kind of the account director, leader, president. Um, David Kravitz headed over, um, basically looked over the creative department, and he's still active in our industry. David works at uh, at Carp and with the Zoomer people. Um, Don Friedman kind of oversaw the account executive team, and um, Morris was very hands on, even in media world. So it, um, it they were passionate about what they did. Uh, they were very. Um, I'd say entrepreneurial in they gave the employees chances to flourish, to take ownership of things, and any idea could come from anywhere, and, and no idea was not a bad idea until it got flushed out. Okay, and uh, one thing that you really liked about uh, working back then was you said that the media planners were also the buyers. Some people listening to this would think, well, isn't that always the case? But that's not true, is it? And why was that important? You know, over the years, uh, you know, the industry has changed in, in many ways. I mean, I've never worked in a big multinational ad agency. I've always seemed to work in, in smaller entrepreneurial shops. But I certainly know there's structure out there where uh, clients use planners and block buyers. And they could be at separate buildings, separate floors, separate agencies. Um, I've never understood how that can be of benefit or of value to a client. I feel that um, a good planner has to be buying, has to be talking to sales reps, has to understand, you know, um, the hands-on knowledge of what's going on out there. Um, otherwise, how can they really, uh, you know, plan the best activity for a client? And, um, you know, and the buyer, you know, they have to be knowledgeable of new opportunities um, coming into the marketplace, especially in this digital world where there's something new every day to consider. So um, I've always felt really important that buyer and planner have to work very closely together. I've never understood how that worked. I've had one client in particular. They'll go unnamed, but they left the planning with one agency and the buying with another. And even though the planning agency, we engaged them and they were very great to work with, it always seemed like our idea was killed on the way to the buying agency. How uh, unfortunate for I, both I, the client and the media. <laughs> I, I just don't understand who on the client side is okay with having that kind of disconnect. But uh, – you moved on after to, uh, to um, Harris Donovan uh, to join their Canadian office. And I wanted to ask you, that, that name Donovan stuck out to me. Is that DDS Donovan? Yeah, you okay. got it. Donovan Data Systems, which is DDS. So if anyone listening to this, that's Prisma now <laughs> or Media Ocean or whatever you've done before, those buying sheets. I didn't even know that. was. Is yeah, that they, what they're called now? Yeah, they were bought out by uh, – I knew this because when I was working at Astral, just by luck, thankfully their office was across the hall from ours. So if I couldn't work the spreadsheet, which I typically couldn't do with all the macros or whatever they're called, I'd go over and ask them for help. It was the best kind of tech support. But they went from DDS to Media Ocean, and now it's Prisma. So and DD, so DDS was the U.S. company. Okay. There was a gentleman, Bob Harris, 
who uh, ran Harris Media, and Her- he merged with Donovan Data Systems and created Harris Donovan, the Canadian version. Now, when the Donovan Data System first moved into Canada, and that would be in the mid-'80s, the system was totally American. So things like, if you recall into your TV world, Victor, uh, remember Spill? There was no such thing as Spill. Remember yep. you would buy ratings for Toronto? You'd have to show the Spill into Barrie or London or, or Kitchener. Kitchener yep. Well, um, in the U.S., there's no such thing as spill. If you buy New York, you buy New York. If you buy L.A., you buy L.A. And you buy Orange County, it's different than L.A. So we had to. I had to help them. So basically what happened was um, when I worked at Saffer, Saffer uh, bought some U.S. media as well. And anyhow, we took on the Donovan data system or the Harris Donovan system. And I was very responsible at Saffer helping them integrate that software into the agency. And as a result, they ended up trying to snafu me out of there and say, hey, why don't you join Donovan Data System and help us write the Canadian version of Donovan Data System, which then became Harris Donovan. So that's what took me away. And at the time, I felt I needed a change. I had great opportunities at Saffer and worked my way up as a you know a senior planner buyer, but thought, hey, great opportunity. And the best part was they moved me to New York and I got to live in New York. So put me up in an apartment right in Manhattan. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So you had the New York media mogul lifestyle for a bit. For a bit. It was a lot of fun. But in a very short while, like literally about four months into it, I really missed media buying. I missed planning and buying. I missed the reps. I missed the interaction with the reps. And basically what I was doing was working with software developers and then training media people. But you know what's crazy? No, but you know what's crazy though? Your career path up until that point mirrors the way the world is sort of going now because you've got those media reps out there, but then you've got the DSPs who are like, they've got the platform sales reps trying to get the agencies to adopt it. So you don't talk to media people like me anymore or anything like that. So you were way ahead of your time back then. (laughs) In a weird way. So after you left Donovan and you got back into the media side of things, where did you land? So I landed at a relatively small media-only shop called Media Specialists. And um, I don't even remember how I landed there. But anyhow, somehow or other, they found me. I think it was through a headhunter. Um, We know it wasn't LinkedIn. No, it certainly wasn't (laughs) LinkedIn. There was no LinkedIn. Um, And Media Specialist was very different than Saffer because it was not a full-service ad agency. It was a media-only shop. In fact, for those who remember media buying services, it was an offshoot of three gentlemen who left media buying services and then started Media Specialist. One is the late David Mitchell. He was one of the partners with Fred Fernandez, and Peter Goff was the other one. Um, And I learned a lot from David. David was uh, a real character, but a really talented negotiator. I learned a lot about negotiating from him. He had a very interesting style. Um, he was definitely well liked by, by a lot of reps and uh, um, it, it was interesting. Um, one of the things that media buying services and media specialists did, and this was really key in the 80s, um, was something called incentive buying. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way it kind of still exists, but it was really um, it was when you told the client you were going to buy something at one price and then you went out and bought it, hopefully a, a little less or a lot less, and then you got to keep the difference. So it was very cutthroat. It was always about getting a deal, getting a bargain, getting it for the cheapest. Um, and after a while, it got to be where we were buying things for clients because we could get a good deal, not because it made the most sense for a client. And I remember having some hefty arguments saying, well, I really think we need to be on station X, but 
that station will only give us a 10% off the going rate. Therefore, their margins aren't going to be as good. So this was an ongoing battle that I had with, you know, some of the management at Media Specialists. So it bothered me. It bothered me a lot that... It kind of sounds like that big agency holding company culture where it's all about shareholders and bottom line and less about the objectives of the client. Right. Or or the, what is it called? Conjunctive buying where you have to spend X number of dollars. You have to buy all this weight on a TV station or radio station and then you just allocate it to the brands or the clients yep, just so it can be allocated. Yep. I, I used um, to work on that when it was back at CBC. I was the coordinator. Yeah, on and, and I get why it can make sense. It can save clients a lot of money and maybe it can make sense being part of it. But if you end up getting properties and if too high percentage of your airtime, broadcast time, space, whatever it is, ends up being in programs that aren't suitable, um, then I think it's it's unfair to the client. So to make a long story short, it was uh, only a couple of years into the gig at Media Specialist, and it was middle of 1984, and I was like, I'm not crazy about this kind of media buying, and I think I'm getting burnt out, and this kind of pressure is not a lot of fun. And I was still young enough and didn't have any ties, and I said, okay, I'm going to go traveling and split this scene. And Took off to Europe with a friend. I think it was around May of 84 and spent three, four months traveling. I think I did one of those 60 days, 60 countries. How many different cities can I see? And just forgot about all the Nothing nonsense but hostels, in this trains, business. Buses, things you like got that. it. Slept in train stations, spent time, saw shows, had a great time. And uh, it's a distant memory. A long time ago. Wow. That's a good experience though. I don't yeah. think enough people actually do that. Yeah, it's true. You know what? It's funny. In my generation, it was Europe. I think now they go to Thailand. I hear a lot of them going to South America. It feels like Europe's not the key place to go. There's a lot of other places, but really important thing to do. And uh, I always, you know, meet, meeting with young people that I hire, I always admire those who have done it and done the, it just makes you more worldly. So I think it's a good idea. Any young people might be listening. Uh, find an opportunity and do the travel. You learn a lot while you're traveling. What I like what they do in some countries, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Australia do it. They, they call it a gap year where after you finish high school, the university or college will hold your acceptance for a year and then you can just – they go work for six months and then travel for the other six. You know, funny you say that, Victor, because I remember when I was traveling, I was amazed at how many um, young people I met from Australia, from um, – a lot from Europe, but Australia especially where like they could get four months off. They could just take four months off and go travel. I said, wow, you can just do that. And uh, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, it's pretty know. rigid here where it's kind of like yeah, here's your plan. School, off. school, school, work, school. Yeah. And you get two weeks off and go fit into vacation. Yuck. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to plan one of those vacations either because you're like, I just want to lay on a beach. I want to pay one fee and get it over with. Yeah, totally. Uh, but eventually you had to come back. Did have to come back. The money does run out at some point. You start <laughs> to realize, oops. Um, and, uh, you know, I did have an apartment. I had sublet it to a friend, but I did have to come back and pay rent. Um, so I got back at the end of August, the end of the summer. And... Uh, first I was a little nervous. Okay. Um, where am I going to, I realized I did want to be back in advertising. That burnt out feeling was a distant memory. I knew I didn't want to work in a media only shop. Didn't want to do this incentive media buying. Realized that being in a full service agency was really important to me. Um, luckily there was a lot of freelance jobs in those days. And before, like, I think I came home on a Thursday and by Monday I called a bunch of reps. There was no LinkedIn then, by the way, no LinkedIn, no social media. I picked up the phone, the good old fashioned way, called a few of my good reps in radio and, and print. And I said, I'm back. Anybody need any freelancers? And before I knew it, there was quite a bit of freelance opportunity. So that was the only time I ever worked. I went for Kona Belding. I actually got to be pigeonholed and just sat and bought radio all day long. So I got to know 
during a couple of weeks of freelancing, okay, I do not want to work in a pigeonholed ad agency where all you do is one medium all day long. So I got to learn a lot about what I didn't want to do, which is also really important when your career is on a certain um, path, figure out what you don't want to do, not just what you do want to do. Anyhow, um, again, reps being wonderful that they are, um, I, my name was given to Len Gill, who was then the president of Echo Advertising, which was about seven years old at the time. And uh, he was looking for somebody who could kind of lead his media department, which was all of three people at the time. Um, didn't really call it media director. He just said, I need a senior media person who can kind of jump in and take over and run the show here. And uh, we met on a Thursday, and I believe it was like five or six o'clock on a Thursday evening, and very unorthodox interview. We kind of just chatted about everything and anything. He had obviously done his homework. Again, no LinkedIn, no computer, but he had called a bunch of reps. So and he I guess, really had to work for that, though, without LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. He called the reps and kind of got feedback on me and he decided he liked me. So it was just a matter of negotiating the the details. And basically he said to me, okay, you're starting tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. I have a staff meeting at 8am. We're discussing a couple of new things and you'll be here. I'm like, uh, well, I'm, I'm still freelancing. Well, you just finish up your work there quickly as possible. You come here at eight and then you can go there and finish (laughs) everything off. Anyhow, um, well, the rest is history. We're going to stop it right there, but come back next week when Marilyn Sherman chats with us about her time at Echo Advertising and her current role as media director of 26.2 International. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.